Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest. Uh, I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, and we are going to be talking about the promises to the patriarchs today. Uh, Joe Works is coming on live and he is in Elmira, New York. Chase Byers is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And Drew DeGrotto, as always, running the show behind the scenes. Good afternoon, guys. How you doing? Hey, Jeff. How's it going today? All right. I wasn't sure you could hear me. There was dead silence there for a minute. I and didn't know if Joe was going to come in. I think I think Joe was trying to make me think that that we weren't on. <laughs> All right. I, I'm just in, I'm just in such awe of you, Jeff, that it, it's hard for me to know when I'm in your presence what to say. But I'm glad to be on here today. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if all the people who listen to this podcast or know what it is to uh, anyway, uh, have to put up with Joe. Joe Word. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to talk about the promises to the patriarchs. You know, uh, the Bible starts out with the story of the creation and everything is good and beautiful. And of course, things go right, right away, right? Well, you know, actually, somebody asked me a question just in the last 48 hours. Uh, somebody asked me, how long were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Do we know? I don't believe so. I don't, I don't think we have any idea. I, well, I can say that it was less than a thousand years because they, you know, they lived to be 900 and something, Adam did. Um, but uh, whatever, however much time they spend in the garden before they sinned, it's, it, then there came that first sin. And what were the consequences of that sin? Well, uh, there are a lot of consequences to that sin, but I'd say the biggest one is they got kicked out of the garden of God. Well, they got kicked out of the garden. They can, they're, they're in this beautiful paradise, and now they're separated from God. It's basically a picture of what happens to our relationship, the relationship between us and God when we sin. Uh, death is pronounced upon them. Uh, there are going to be troubles and trials in life. And so it's interesting. The Bible starts out, you really have two chapters that describe the creation in a beautiful garden, and then bam, we've got this huge problem. And that's what the rest of the Bible is about, the solution to this huge problem of sin and, and the estrangement of man in, from his relationship with God. And so we need to understand that we're in the predicament of being estranged from God by our sin also, and so the rest of the Bible should be of interest to us because it's about this solution. You know, there are hints early on in the early chapters of Genesis of, of God having a plan to save man. But it's when we get to Genesis chapter 12 that we see a particular plan start to unfold as God makes some promises to this man, Abraham. One of you guys want to kind of introduce this idea of these promises to Abraham? Um, can, I, can I go back to that original question for just a quick second? Sure. Uh, sorry, it took me a minute to uh, process your, your question. Oh, that's an interesting one. So in Genesis 5, Adam was 130 when he had Seth. Mm. So it would certainly appear that all of the children were born post-garden. Um, so he would be you know, less than 130 then years that they were in the garden. Uh, yeah, I and I, I think you're... you're pointing to the children being born. Certainly Seth was born after they left the garden. Seth was born as a replacement for Abel. Right. Abel had been killed by Cain, and that's after they left the garden. Right, so. right. Yeah, it, look, it 
Genesis 4.1, it looks like the, the timing, the way it's written, it looks as if all the children were born after the garden. So Yeah, that's a great observation, Joe. So, so even though Adam uh, lives uh, 930 years, no, 130 years after it became the seed, yeah. he lived um, hmm, 930 years, yeah, verse 5 of chapter 5. Yeah. So even though Adam lived 930 years, we can be certain that his time in the Garden of Eden was less than 130 years and probably considerably less than that. Okay, good, good, yeah. good observation. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, it took me a minute to process that before I, uh, you'd, you'd already moved on, so. Well, I'll, try, I'll try to move more, more glacially. Please, I, I need that, thank you. Okay, so then we get to Genesis chapter 12, and we've got this Abraham, um, and, and there are promises made to him. Uh, he, he starts out in Ur of the Chaldees, which would be over uh, somewhere in the vicinity of of Iraq and maybe the southeastern portion of Iraq down toward Kuwait in modern geography. And he is called from there and he travels up along what we call the Fertile Crescent following the Euphrates River upstream and um, settles in Haran for a time. And then he is told to come down to this land that he's not seen before. And it's a land where the Canaanites live. And so we get to these promises in chapter 12. And I think this is the third time that I have asked, will one of you guys please introduce these promises for us? <laughs> you want us to introduce them by reading them or just by stating them? I don't care. Just introduce the promises. So, so in Genesis 12, in verses 1 through 3, you have a series of promises that I would suggest that there's maybe as many as seven of them, but we don't normally focus on all of them. That's true. Uh, if you want to quickly tick off the seven, tick off the seven, but I do want to focus on three of them. Yeah, um, uh, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do that uh, quickly. Uh, uh, he says in verse one, to a land that I will show you. Two, verse two, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those uh, him who curses you. And in, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. So might be, depending on how people categorize those, maybe as many as, as seven. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the, the three things that I want to especially focus on are in verse uh, two, the first phrase, I'll make you a great nation. And um, at the end of verse three, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in verse uh, seven, where he says, to your descendants, I will give this land. Um, so I, I would look at the statement, I'll make you a great nation. His, his progeny, his descendants are going to be great in number, and, and they're going to be a nation. And to those descendants, God's going to give this land. But in Abraham, there's going to be a blessing for all families of the earth, not just his progeny. And when you remember, we're just in chapter 12 here. The sin that separated man from God was just back in chapter 3. So what greater blessing could one imagine is, is needed than a reconciliation with God? And that's where this is going. But it says, in you. But when we turn over to Genesis chapter 26, let's just jump over there real quick. These promises get repeated to Abram's son, and to his grandson, to Isaac and to Jacob. In Exodus chapter 26, and I'm going to be looking at verse um, 4, well, verse 3, 4, 
starting in verse 3 of Genesis 26, sojourn in this land, and I'll be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants I'll give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So this clarifies what was meant back in chapter 12 when it said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, through your progeny. Uh, now to Isaac, he specifies, in your descendants. Well, who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It would be the, the Israelites. Israelites. Where do they get the name Israelites? Jacob is renamed Israel after yeah. wrestling with God and from there, he'll be named Israel and then has 12 sons and they become the Israelites. Yeah, okay. So what you see here is God has a plan in mind to bring about reconciliation by taking away man's sin. And that's going to be the blessing. And he's going to do it through this nation that's going to come from Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, whose other name is Israel. And so, so we start to see this plan unfold here and it's easy i think for us to focus on these three promises and say well the one that is spiritual the one that is about us is especially in you and in your descendants all families of the earth will be blessed uh when these promises are restated to jacob in genesis the 28th chapter let's flip over there real quickly and, and let me explain where i'm going with this it's easy for us to see only this one about a blessing for all families of the earth as the spiritual one that's pointing to Christ. But actually, I think the case can be made that all of them do. And we'll come back to that thought in a minute. But let's go to Genesis 28. So here, uh, Jacob has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a ladder connecting earth and its top uh, reaching up to heaven. So it's connecting heaven and earth. And the angels of God are ascending and descending upon up on this ladder. And uh, our listeners may or may not remember that in John chapter 1 and verse 51, Jesus said of himself, calling himself the Son of Man, you'll see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so what he does is he takes the imagery of this dream and he puts himself in the place of the ladder. And he is the one that reconnects man to God. That ladder with angels going back and forth on it is a picture of fellowship between heaven and earth, between God and man, harmony, reconciliation. And it's because of Jesus' sacrifice that that's possible. So, so we see where this is going. It's going to, to Jesus, who is an Israelite, and this nation of Israel is used by God in various ways, in the laws that he gave them, the laws about sacrifice and priesthood and the temple and all of these things to develop these concepts that are realized in Jesus that are all about reconciliation to God. But in Genesis 28, all of these promises are repeated. If we look at Genesis chapter 28 and verse 13, in the dream, God up above the ladder says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I'll give it to you and to your descendants. Okay, so there's the land promise. Verse 14. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. So there's the idea of a great nation. Your descendants are going to be a great number. And then at the end of verse 14, and in you and in your descendants, 
shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so there you have this promise of, about a blessing for everybody coming through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what, what do you guys think about this idea that, that I've hinted at, that it's not just that promise, but also the idea of the land and also the idea of a great nation, that while, first of all, referring to the physical land of Canaan in the Old Testament that became a possession of the earthly nation or fleshly nation of Israel in the Old Testament, those promises also have a spiritual fulfillment in Christ that's about our reconciliation to God. What do you think about that? Do you think that do you think I'm on the right track there? Or do you think I'm off base? So it'd be almost like thinking of these Old Testament passages as being spiritual focused. Um, uh, uh, I kind of like that idea. Uh, I wonder, um, could we associate something like Hebrews 11 with the land promise? Um, being that Abraham was the first recipient of that before Isaac and before Jacob, um, uh, you know, when he talks about in uh, Hebrews 11, um, that they confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, declaring plainly that they seek a homeland, but they seek a verse 16, but now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I think that's right. And he goes on at the end of chapter 11 and says in verse 39, these all having had witness born to them through their faith, received not the promise and God having provided some better thing concerning us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And here the promise doesn't, that, that land promise seems to be very much in view that they were looking for a city um, that with, uh, how to say it, how to say it, a, a, a city that is heavenly, in uh, 11, 16? Yeah. yeah oh, in verse 13 was what I was thinking of also. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, plural. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, so, so also, let's just, so let's take the land promise. Let's go back to a psalm. Let's go to Psalm 37, if I'm thinking right. Yep. Let's go to Psalm 37. This is a psalm of David's, and he makes a statement in verse 11, that depending on your translation, um, may, may sound very familiar. I'm looking at the New American Standard, Chase. I think you have something different. Um, whoever has something different, like to hear it. But in the New American Standard, it says in verse 11, the humble will inherit the land um, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. You know, in, in the terms of the Old Testament, for an Israelite who... Uh, is part of this nation that descends from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's, who the people who ended up slaves in Egypt and were led out of Egypt by Moses, spent 40 years in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and then finally got to that land and conquered all the nations that were in it to drive them out. Uh, if you talk about the land, that's what you're going to think of, that land. But how does your translation read this if you have a different version, guys? Uh, New King James says, but the meek shall inherit the earth. There you go. So whereas the New American Standard says the humble will inherit the land, the New King James says the meek will inherit the earth. And I, I'm not suggesting that one is a better translation than the other. Part of the issue here is that the language used is somewhat ambiguous. The word for land can mean the whole earth, or it can mean a plot of land, or it can mean some dirt 
um, and the meek and the humble. It's easy to see that same. But when you say it that way, the meek shall inherit the earth, what is that? Do we recognize that? It sounds exactly like what Jesus said in the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth, is he talking about the land of Canaan? I don't believe so. Not at all. But he's also not talking about the whole globe. What he's doing, I believe, is he is using that Old Testament physical land, the promise that the Israelites would get that land. It was a promised land as a way of speaking, as, as, a, as a metaphor for the spiritual habitation of, of God's people, the ultimate people of God, not just the Jews. And the meek are going to inherit the promised land, the ultimate promised land. So I think that is an example of um, this idea of the land promise. Yes, it had a physical fulfillment in a physical land that we know is the land of Canaan. But ultimately, it was foreshadowing a blessing that God has in mind for the reconciled people. Well, look at Zechariah chapter 13. Look at Zechariah chapter 13. Did, did you guys reference the end of Hebrews 11 as well, verses yeah. 39 and 40? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's okay. Cool. All right. Yeah, that's we, we did. Look at Zechariah chapter um, 13. I was going to try to say something smart in, uh, there, but I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> I wondered what was going on in that brain of yours. Leave, leave, leave that work to the professionals, Jeff. It's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it took, it took me this long to realize the connection. So sorry about that. All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I, I was just reflecting on that idea that from apart from us, that they would not be made perfect. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right, okay. Zechariah chapter 13. Um, so Zechariah is prophesying, prophesying uh, over 500 years before Jesus uh, they've come out of captivity. They're rebuilding the temple, but he is looking forward. Uh, this is, of course, long after the time of Abraham. Then this would be what 1,300 years after the time of Abraham. And uh, as he looks forward to a day coming in the future, he says in chapter 13, verse one: "In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem." for sin and for impurity. When you think about a fountain being open for sin and for impurity, that doesn't that strike you as a picture of sin and impurity being washed away? Yep. Verse two, it'll come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from where? The land. The land. The yeah. land, yeah, yeah. Throughout the history of Israel, even though God had taken this nation, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he had blessed them, and he had given them a physical land and given them instructions to build a house for God that he might dwell among them, there had been a perpetual problem of them turning to worship false gods, turning to worship idols. And here, after they have been carried away from that land, spent time in exile, and now come back to that land, but without a king, the prophet Zechariah is looking forward to a time they're going to get a, a king who will also be priest, which is also which is obviously Jesus. He calls him the branch, which is a term for the Messiah in the Old Testament. And as it looks forward to that time, you have this idea of a fountain that's opened, cleansing sin and impurity away. And God says, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. 
Now, if we just look at the physical land, I don't know that you can say uh, ever there's been a time where idols were completely eradicated from the physical land that had been the land of Canaan. But here I would say the term land is being used in a spiritual sense. The Old Testament promised land foreshadowed a spiritual habitation for God's people. We could just think of the church. And within the church, within the body of Christ, the names of idols are cut off. Uh, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ is those who are saved from their sins by the blood of Christ, and they worship the true God. And so the names of the idols are cut off. But So does it make sense then to think about those promises to Abraham and here specifically the land promise? Yes, it's about that physical land, but ultimately it's looking forward to a spiritual habitation for God's people. Yeah, very much so. I think it's, it's, it's really helpful to see that in this text, isn't it? And then, go ahead, Chase. Well, I was going to monkey wrench a little bit because I, I do want to. I do want to be that guy that plays the the devil's advocate, as we say sometimes with this, because there are people who would still advocate that there is a, a sense in which we're going to go back to that land one day, that's right? And that that that's where we're going to inhabit. And I think they would go back to like Genesis seventeen, where. God said to Moses, or sorry, God said to Abraham, I'm going to establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then verse eight, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting uh, covenant, or uh, excuse me, everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Yeah, I'm so glad. it's an everlasting possession then why wouldn't it go on into eternity, I guess would be the question. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that point up because, of course, there is this doctrine that says that Christ is going to come back and he's going to actually rule in that land and, and the Jews are all going to go back to that land and get converted, all of that kind of thing. And they kind of rely on this idea that that land is, still belongs to the Jews today, to the Israelites today. And, you know, it can be pointed out, rightly, I think, that there are all sorts of things in the Old Testament that are described as everlasting or for forever, using the same word that's used here in Genesis 17. Uh, circumcision is said to be an everlasting covenant. In fact, in this very passage, um, in verse 13 of Genesis 17, it says, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But what do we find when we get to the New Testament about circumcision? You, you don't have to be circumcised. Yeah, it's all it's been done away with. Yeah. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, according to Galatians, the sixth chapter. And so uh, you could also point to the Levitical priesthood. You can point to the Sabbath, all kinds of things that are said to be everlasting. But, and, and sometimes I think we say, well, not really. But maybe another way to look at this is to say, well, not really in a physical way, but yes, really, if we see that ultimately these things are about a spiritual uh, meaning, for example, circumcision, when we get to the New Testament, even though the fleshly circumcision is no longer required, there is a circumcision of the heart that is required. Or if we talk about the Sabbath, even though the seventh day Sabbath is, is not something that we're to be judged by, there is a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God, according to Hebrews the fourth chapter. And when we talk about the land, we've already talked about that. There, I think if we look at the idea that the physical land 
really was kind of a placeholder, you could say, a foreshadowing of the ultimate land, then maybe we could say in that sense, it, it is forever. Um, what do you think? I think that's fitting. Maybe to put a verse, uh, and perhaps you gave one or two, but a verse that helps me to, to remember this concept, uh, Exodus chapter 40 and verse 15 talks about uh, Aaron's priesthood being an everlasting priesthood. And I don't know anybody, that, I'm sure there are some people, I don't know anybody that believes that we're going to continue with the Levitical priesthood with Aaron's priesthood because if we do, then we're rejecting Jesus's priesthood, according to yeah. the Hebrew, book of Hebrews. So I, most people will easily see right there, everlasting doesn't mean what we think it means, um, at least not physically, as you're, as you're mentioning here. One of our viewers, Pat Donahue, has sent in a list of passages here where something in the Old Testament was said to be forever. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, a servant shall serve his master forever. Um, and Second Chronicles 2, 4, sacrifices are an ordinance forever. Uh, do, do we still make those animal sacrifices? In Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17, sacrifice, uh, the burnt offering is a perpetual statute. And it's this word forever. He, Exodus chapter 40 and verse 15, the Levitical priesthood is, is this one you just mentioned? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, an everlasting priesthood and, and so on. And so that's helpful to see that. So, so back to your point, Chase, people would say, well, you know, this land was to be theirs forever, so they should still have that physical land today. I, I think they're missing the point when they, make, when they try to make that case there, but then don't say, well, all these other things we should have today too. So. And, and look, I mean, that's something Jesus also had to deal with. He was dealing with a bunch of disciples and a bunch of followers who thought that this was going to be the time where the Messiah would come in and whoop up on all the Romans so that they could get the land back. Yep. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of kingdom I came here to establish. That's, that's not what I'm looking to do. And so I, I think a lot of people don't even realize that Jesus was against that very idea of making this physical land, the everlasting land. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Um, but it is interesting that even amongst Jesus disciples, they didn't necessarily have that clear understanding until after his death and resurrection and after further revelation. Because in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, uh, you have the disciples asking, do you at this time restore um, the kingdom to Israel? And they seem to be thinking very much in terms of the fleshly nation that's the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob biologically. But of course, so let's turn to this. Let's turn to the idea of a great nation. So we, we know that this, the idea of a blessing for all families of the earth, that's, that's Jesus. We've now talked about the land. It foreshadows a spiritual land. But what about the idea that even the idea of the great nation that would dwell in that land, while first of all, it was talking about the fleshly descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that promise also one in which we should see a spiritual realization that goes beyond the fleshly descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, he says all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, in the original promise in Genesis 12, that certainly seems to be beyond just the descendants, uh, his physical descendants, right? It's all the families of the earth as opposed to all of the progeny of Abraham. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you so. <laughs> see, I could, I could, I could use those big words too. Okay. At least you didn't say prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, and 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 but but again, I'm kind of making a distinction here that at the end of verse three, this blessing for all families of the earth. I think people readily recognize that's about Jesus. But what about back at the beginning of verse two? I will make you a great nation. Can we look at that? Here, here's what I have in mind. Turn over to Genesis chapter seventeen. Genesis chapter seventeen. Um, where Abram's name is changed to Abraham. And it says in verse five, no longer shall your name be called Abram, which meant exalted father or something like that. But your name shall be Abraham, which means father of a multitude, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And, and we might be tempted to think, well, okay, so there was the nation through his son Isaac, and then there was the nation through his son Ishmael. And then when he marries Keturah later on, he has several sons, and from those sons come the Midianites and the Medanites and so on. But but I think there's another meaning here that Paul, okay, here we go, Joe, how about this word, elucidates in Romans the fourth chapter, <laughs> I one-upped you. So <laughs> in Romans- Yeah, the, but to be fair, the, the word he first used was a word you used. Oh, so I'm two up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Romans, the fourth chapter. In this chapter, uh, Paul is making the case that Abraham was counted as righteous because of his faith, and that this was, in, this was indicated even before he was circumcised. And Paul goes on to make the case that the reason God did it that way was so that Abraham could be the father not only of those of the circumcision who believe, but also those of the uncircumcision who believe. Or we could say it another way, so that he could be the father not only of the Jews who believe, but also the father of the Gentiles who believe. So this is Romans chapter 4, and I'm going to pick up the reading in verse, um, I'll, I'll pick up the reading in verse 10, where he asked the question about this blessing of being counted righteous. When was it reckoned? Verse 10, how then was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And we'll note, he was counted as righteous in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was in uncircumcision, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be in uncircumcision, that righteousness might be reckoned unto them, and the father of the circumcision to them who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had in uncircumcision. So basically what he said there is God did it this way. So it'd be clear people who are Jews, but also people who are Gentiles can be justified the same way Abraham was through faith. And then we get to verse 13, for not through the law was the promise to Abraham or to his seed, to his progeny, to his descendants, uh, that he should be heir of the world, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they that are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is made of none effect. For the law works wrath, where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Now here it comes. For this cause it is of faith, that it may be according to grace, to the end that the promise may be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also, which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. 
So Paul connects that idea of Abraham being a father of many nations uh, with the idea of his, his spiritual progeny, his spiritual descendants being those who are faith from whatever nation they are in an earthly sense. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm going. And of course, if you go on over to Romans, the ninth chapter, he's going to make the case that even though much of Israel has lost, that doesn't, is lost, that doesn't mean God's purpose or his promise has come to naught. And so he makes this statement in verses six and seven of Romans nine. Let's get verses six, seven, and eight. It is not as though the word of God has come to naught, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel, neither because they are Abraham's seed are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, it is not the children of the flesh that are children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned for a seed. So that, that's what I have in mind when I think of this idea that it's not just the promise that all families will be blessed in your descendants. It also is those other promises. You're going to be, a, you're going to have a great nation, many descendants come from you, and they're going to get the land. Those two had a physical realization in the fleshly nation of Israel that lived in the land of Canaan, but they also have a spiritual realization in the descendants of Abraham who are descendants by faith and abide in the spiritual habitation that God has prepared for them. I like that. Uh, Galatians 3 as well, just to uh, uh, say Paul agreed with Paul. Um, uh, you know, same thing that he taught to the churches in Galatia, verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right. Good. Excellent. Now let's go over to Genesis 15. Um, because here in Genesis 15, excuse me, 15, we're going to see these promises restated. Let me see. How much time do we have? Are we okay on time? We have 12 minutes. All right. So Genesis 15, we're going to see these promises restated. And here we're going to see very much the focus is the focus for these promises about the great nation and the land. The focus here in Genesis 15 is very much going to be on the physical realization of those things. And so let's just walk through that real quickly. This is the passage uh, where Abraham's faith is counted to him for righteousness that Paul has in mind in, in the first part of Romans chapter four. And it's an interesting discussion. Uh, Abram's getting old and he's concerned that how's any of this going to happen? He doesn't have any descendants. He doesn't even have one. And maybe just his servant is going to be his heir. And God says, no, you're going to have somebody come forth from your own body. Took him outside and said, look at the stars. And if you've ever seen on the Discovery Channel or something, one of these visions of the night sky out in the middle of nowhere where you can see all the stars, that's what Abraham would have been seeing. And he says, that, that's, that's what your descendants are going to be like. And it just says very simply, verse six, he believed in the Lord and he, Lord, reckoned to him his righteousness. It's always amusing to me. Abraham's an old man at this point. He's older than 75, not yet 80, 85, um, but he's somewhere in that window and he hasn't had any kids and Sarah is not having kids. She's too old. And God says, you're going to have all these descendants. He says, okay, I believe you. And then God says, and... I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And Abraham says, well, how can I know that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand that. But anyway, he wants to know how I can know that. And so then there's this, this vision that he sees, and maybe we don't have time to go through the details, but God speaks to him in detail. And so let's go to verse 13. God said to Abram, 
know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed. 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and after, afterward they will come out with, out with many possessions. So what's that talking about? The, well, the children of Israel. Go ahead, Chase. I was going to say, yeah, that sounds like the exodus to me. I mean, but also this enslavement that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be in Egypt. They're going to be enslaved. But when they come out, they're going to come out with what? Uh, they're going to come out with um, many possessions. What's that about? When the Israelites are in Egypt and the 10 plagues come upon them, just before the 10th plague, Moses tells the Israelites to ask of their neighbors and the, the Egyptian neighbors gold and silver. And they do. And the Egyptian neighbors give it to them. And so the Israelites come out of Egypt with many possessions. So verse 13 and 14 is a very literal description of literally what happens to the fleshly descendants of Abraham. Um, and then as you come down, it says in verse 16, in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Well, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So it, it, God's not going to drive out these nations in, that are existing in the land of Canaan until such time as their iniquity justifies that. But in the fourth generation, that'll be the case. And then in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And he ticks off the nations that lived in that land, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So all I'm saying here is in chapter 15 now, as these promises are made to Abraham for the second time, there's a very clear focus upon the physical fulfillment of these things. I don't think that takes away, though, from the, the fact that ultimately these things have a, a realization that is not just about the physical descendants of Abraham and not just about the physical land. In fact, I wonder if, could we make some uh, connections and, and feel free to tell me that I'm stretching this too far. Uh, I see the end of chapter 14 and chapter 15 is going together. Um, uh, that you have this story of uh, uh, the king of Sodom offering him riches, he turns that down. And then God's response, I am your exceedingly great reward, chapter 15 and verse 1. So you have the, uh, the, the Sodom, uh, the, the, that Lot is taken captive, he's rescued, and there's a great reward connected to that, uh, riches at the end. God tells Abraham that same thing is going to happen to your descendants. And so we see that with the exodus from Egypt. But then we see the same thing, just to your, your whole point that you started with. Yep. We see that spiritually. We are in the bondage of sin. God gives us freedom and gives us the riches in Christ. Uh, it, is, it seems like there's a, there's a pattern building here within this section. I think that I think you're right. And so just stepping back big picture, Genesis 3, the first sin, man estranged from God. Genesis 12, God's got a plan. There's these promises. And in between chapters 12 and 15, in chapter 15, where he really focuses upon the earthly physical fulfillment of these promises, but in between there, 
you have this story about Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest, and is of course so prominent in the book of Hebrews, where he is used to foresh where it's made clear he foreshadowed Jesus, who is both king and priest. So it's all interwoven together. It God clearly has in mind a solution, a priest who can offer a sacrifice that will reconcile man to God and solve the problem of sin back in Genesis, the third chapter. This is the great blessing. And he's going to bring about this promise, this blessing by means of a nation that's going to come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are going to live in this physical land. But it's all so interwoven. Uh, you know, sometimes we talk about and I don't want to get into the idea of a female God here. That's not where I'm going. But we sometimes talk about the differences between men and women and how men are, they can think of one thing at a time and women can multitask, right? Hmm. It's like in God's revelation, he had, he, well, he's God. It, this is kind of an obvious thing, but he has the ability, he's, he's multitasking. I've, I've got this big plan in mind and here's the physical aspects of it. But at the same time, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about where this is all going. And um, anyway, it's, it's just, I think it's comforting to see uh, the, the plan of salvation, so to speak, as it has been in the mind of God from the beginning and how he has uh, worked it out and it has unfolded throughout the ages uh, covered by the story of the Bible. All right, anything else, guys? No, it's just so encouraging to see that from the very beginning of uh, the, the opening pages of the book, we, we see God telling us what's going to happen, and it unfolds. Look at all the different books we've looked at, Old and New Testament. Uh, just a beautiful piece of literature here of, uh, of God's plan of, of redemption for man. Let's turn over. Just We have just a couple minutes here. Let's turn over to Galatians. You took us to Galatians a few minutes ago. Um, let's look at this passage in Galatians chapter 3, just to reorient ourselves, and then let's turn over to Galatians 6. So in Galatians chapter 3, you have this statement, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. So God made some promises to Abram, and we can be heirs of, of those promises. You might think most especially the blessing for all families of the earth, but, but what we've said is really, even the land promise, the great nation promise enter in here. But the point is, in Galatians 3.29, we have these promises by being of Christ, not by being a Jew. Uh, and so these promises, and especially the promise of the blessing, is uh, for people of all nations. And, and then you get to chapter 4, and he talks about Isaac and Ishmael, and how Ishmael was a, a child just by the flesh, purely natural. But Isaac was a child that came about by God's promise by God say so born when Abram is a hundred and Sarah's about 90 years old wouldn't have happened except God said it would happen spoke it into existence you could say Paul compares the church to Christ he compares Christians to Isaac whether we're Jew or Gentile we're children because God said so not because we can trace bloodlines back to Abraham and so we get to Genesis chapter 6 and verse um, 15. And he says, neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as shall walk by this rule, peace be upon them in mercy and upon the Israel of God. I think that expression there, Israel of God, is alluding to this the spiritual nation that includes both Jews and Gentiles. 
as, as we saw it in, in Romans also. Okay, well, uh, we, can, we can leave it there unless you have a final comment or final observation. Well, and, I, I, if, if I could go back to the, the land, uh, as you were speaking, it dawned on me, would John 4 be helpful in recognizing that the, the land promise was not intended to be everlastingly physical? When Jesus says, you know, the, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. Referring yeah. to Mount Gerizim. Yeah. In the, the mountain in Samaria. Yeah. But just the idea of Jerusalem was the place where God had put his name in that physical land. Yes. And so yeah. if, if for salvation is from the Jews. Yeah. But if that's no longer the case, if, if, if no longer is the location of Jerusalem does it have special significance for God's people? Then it's easy to see that the land no longer has the physical land no longer has um, special significance. I think is a good connection, Joe. Good. All right, thank you all, and Lord willing, we'll see you next uh, Wednesday at the same time.